So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27. We're going to look at verses 11 through 26. If you are new with us, we've been in this series that we have entitled Savior. And I wonder this morning, you don't need to necessarily answer out loud, but I just want you to think about this and and ask this in your own mind. Do you need a Savior? And I think all of us would say yes. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And we could, when we say yes to that, we could mean that in different ways. But as we've been walking through this series, really on this last week of Jesus's earthly ministry before he goes to the cross, and we've been going to different passages of scripture and really joining our Savior on this journey, this journey that was meant for you and me, this journey that that our Savior went on for you and me, what I want you to walk out of the doors with today, and better yet, what the Lord wants you to walk out of these doors with the realization of, is you may have come in these doors believing that you needed a Savior, but what God's desire for you is, is that when you walk out of these doors, you understand who the Savior is. And so in Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26, if, if you are first time here, what we've been doing is really we started out this journey on this last week of Jesus. He's going into, the, into Jerusalem, into the city of Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. He's going into Jerusalem on this donkey that has never been ridden, and the crowds are shouting, Hosanna. They're acknowledging the Savior for who he is, that he is the Messiah, and then from that triumphal entry, then Jesus takes his 12 disciples and he goes up to this upper room and Jesus really illustrates pretty much the most humble act that you could possibly imagine as he kneels down and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And then last week we saw Jesus and his disciples now leave that upper room and go to the garden where Jesus pours out his heart before his heavenly Father really asking him, Lord, if there's any other possible way that the sins of humanity can be paid for, Lord, would you allow that to happen? But we know that the Lord has ordained that our Savior is to hang on a cross for you and me. And so the Savior embraces that, submits to that, and is steadfast on the rest of his journey to the cross. And so now we find ourselves in Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26, and just to give you a little background to where we're going to jump into this passage of Scripture, in Mark 14, you find this account that we're about to read, and Jesus is taken speedily from the Garden of Gethsemane to Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas is the high priest of Israel, and, and Jesus stands before Caiaphas and the chief priests and the elders and the religious leaders here in probably the middle of the night after midnight in those wee hours of the early morning. But what you need to understand is this trial that happens before Caiaphas and the chief priests and elders is illegal according to Jewish law. This trial isn't something that should have happened. It was illegal, and it was illegal because a trial was never to occur occur in a private home. And Jesus is led into Caiaphas' private home, as I said in Mark 14, Those trials were to be done in a public place because if they were done in a public place, then you would be able to have witnesses that were able to speak to the accusations of the one who is on trial. So already this trial that is taking place in Mark 14, though we don't see it here in our passage in Matthew 27, is bogus. It's against law. But not only that, what's also interesting is that 
His enemies attempt to find an indictment against Jesus that could be taken to Pilate, like they're looking for something that they could take to the higher powers so that Jesus could indeed be condemned. But what's interesting is this was also illegal because it was illegal because witnesses could not be called at night. So here you have what's taking place already that, that these religious leaders are doing something that's against the very law that they were supposed to adhere to. And so that's just important to understand as we go into this passage of Scripture in Matthew 27. See, the trial before Pilate that we're going to look at today is really mentioned in every account of the gospel. It's mentioned in Mark 14 and Luke 23 and John 18 and every one of those passages of scripture. And we'll make mention to some of these cross references of this account that we're going to see in Matthew. They all emphasize a different aspect of what took place as Jesus stands before trial. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe you're a teacher and you're trying to figure out what went down in your classroom when you weren't in there. You ever experienced that? And, and you're like, okay, so you, so you ask some kid, and you always go to, you go to the kid, right, that you believe is never going to lie, right? And so you go to him or her, and she tells you the story, and then all of a sudden you ask another kid, and it's, it's a little bit different than that story. Maybe you're a police officer in here this morning. That's, you're like, that's my life. That's my life. But you know that when you ask different people what took place, you end up getting the full story of what happened. Because all of us emphasize different things that stuck out to us. And so that's what's true in this passage of Scripture. And actually many accounts that you find in the Gospels, there may be some differences. There may be some things that aren't emphasized in one passage of Scripture that are emphasized in the next. But the purpose of it is, is to give us the full understanding of what took place. And so this account is mentioned in every one of the Gospels, as I mentioned. But here's what I want you to do understand before we get into this passage of scripture and read it and unpack it is that Jesus Christ stands before every human heart so we're going to see Jesus stand before Pilate he stands before every human heart and every human heart must decide what they are going to do with Jesus you have to do that I have to do that Every person has to do that. And so before we go into this passage of Scripture, just picture that in your mind, that Jesus is standing before you. And you have to decide, what am I going to do with my Savior? See, that's the most important and inescapable question every one of us can ask ourselves and it's the question that's posed before Pilate as the savior who is innocent sinless perfect as the savior stands before Pilate Pilate has to answer this question what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ and every one of us have to decide that so the title of this message this morning is this do you have the savior on trial is he on trial this morning in your life, in your heart? Is he on trial? Because if he's on trial, then you are also posed with the question, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with the Savior? And so I'm going to give you three questions this morning that you need to ask yourself and that I need to ask myself that will shape how you respond to the Savior. 
Three questions that we're going to be able to glean, that we're going to be able to pull out of this narrative, of this account of Jesus standing before Pilate. And so look at verse 11. We'll start there. Look at what it says. It says, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. Now, what you need to understand is in John 18, Jesus was led, and it's not mentioned here, so let me, let me just make reference to another account to once again give us the fuller picture of what's going on. In John 18, Jesus was led to the praetorium. That's, what, that's where Pilate was meeting with the Savior in the early morning after being in front of the chief priests and elders. So he's led from Caiaphas' house, the high priest, and now he's led to where Pilate lives in this praetorium where, where Pilate has individuals stand before him in a court setting. And it's early in the morning. So just imagine, let's put ourselves in the story. Pilate's probably not greatly enthused that he's woken up early in the morning by those that probably drive him crazy, which are these religious leaders, which they were not friends. But this is where Jesus is in this passage of Scripture, in Pilate's house, in the place where accusations were brought, in the place where verdicts were given in this praetorium. And what you don't find in Matthew 27, verse 11, where Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. Here's how the account is given in John 18, 34. Because Pilate answers this question in John 18, 34, some more color is given to how Jesus responds. And in John 18, 34, it says this, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? So what Jesus is saying is, are you saying that I'm king of the Jews or did someone else tell you that? Now look at verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Now, you may gloss over this passage of Scripture and not catch this, but let me point this out to you in case you didn't catch it. Don't you see that when Pilate asks, Jesus gives an answer. But when the chief priests and religious leaders ask, he doesn't give an answer. Here's why. Because Jesus knew that Pilate was ignorant. That Pilate wasn't exposed to the same truth that Jesus gave. So when Pilate asks, Jesus is going to answer. He's going to declare that he's king of the Jews, whether or not Pilate believes it or not. But the reason why it says in this passage of Scripture that Jesus doesn't respond to the chief priests and scribes like he did to Pilate is because they had three years of Jesus telling them who he was. And he, they didn't respond. So Jesus doesn't respond to those that know better. Why? Because he's told them that over and over and over and over again. And they should know that already. Pilate here is ignorant. Verse 13, and says, and then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Like, do you not realize what they're saying about you, Jesus? Do you not realize the many accusations that they're making against you? And what are those accusations? Well, Luke 23, verse 2 says this. They began to accuse him, saying, this is what they're saying to Pilate, the chief priests and scribes. It's not mentioned in Matthew 27. It says, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, if you're paying attention this morning, you're like, wait a minute. Isn't there a passage of Scripture in Matthew 22? Like maybe you didn't know the reference where Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and God the things that are God. So obviously it doesn't take a 
astute detective to figure out the scribes and religious leaders are absolutely lying here. Jesus always talked about giving tribute to Caesar. And they say in saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So what they're doing here is they're saying to Pilate, listen, this guy's going around and he's saying he's king. He's committing treason. He's going against you, Pilate, and and the government of Rome. Now here's what's interesting. Had Pilate known, or had Pilate believed that any of this was true, he would have known about it. So Pilate's not being stupid here. He knows what the Jews, what the religious leaders are trying to do, but look at what it says in verse 14. Look at Jesus' response to Pilate's question. Don't you know what they're testifying against you? Don't you know the accusations that they're bringing to you? You ought to want to speak up for yourself, Jesus. Like, I know that they're not true, but I want to hear you say it. But look at verse 14. But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, So the governor was like greatly amazed. He was shocked. See, here's the first question that I believe we need to ask ourselves that will shape how we respond to the Savior today. Because remember what I said? Every one of us today are faced with the question, what am I going to do with the Savior? Here's the first question. Are you making accusations towards the Savior today? Because he's... Religious leaders sure were. Are you making accusations? See, it's easy for us to read this passage of Scripture. We've probably heard it many times if we've been at church at all. Most of us, this story is not new. For some of you, it may be, and that's okay. But as you look at this story, it's really easy for us to point the finger at Pilate or to the religious leaders and say, can you believe they're making these accusations towards the Savior? Do they not realize who Jesus is? I mean, I can't believe that they're doing this. But I want you to fight against that. See, I want you to turn the judgment off towards others, and I want you to look inward. I want you to evaluate your heart this morning. I want you to ask yourself, am I making accusations towards the Savior that are unfounded? Is that what you're doing? Is that examine my heart? Have I been making accusations that should not be made, that I have no business making, towards the Savior because we can clearly see that these accusations are totally bogus. See, I wonder if we're coming the doors this morning and we're saying this, Lord, like if you're Savior, if you're the Savior, then why did you allow this to happen? Maybe something is going on in your life right now and it's taken you off guard and so You're saying in your heart, in your life, in your mind, Lord, if you're truly Savior, then why did you allow this to happen? Lord, if you're truly Savior, then why didn't you intervene in this way? Lord, if you are truly Savior, then why didn't you give the answer in this way, the way that I think you should have given it? And so before we're so quick to cast judgment upon these individuals that did not believe in who the Savior is, I wonder practically as we look at our lives, are we hurling unfounded accusations towards the Savior that should not be made? And I wonder if we're feeling like Pilate this morning. Like, Jesus, you should answer me right now. 
Like other people are watching my life right now and they see what I'm going through and they, they, they see the turmoil and they see the stress on me and they, they, they see that, man, this person is trying to serve the Lord and why in the world would the Lord remove this from their life? Lord, Lord it would be a good time for you to speak up right now and to answer my accusations and we may be like Pilate and be like, man, I'm totally shocked that Jesus isn't intervening. I'm shocked that Jesus isn't speaking up. And so are we making some accusations that are really unfounded? And really, we're saying the same thing as Pilate said. Look at verse 13 again. I want to emphasize this. Where you're saying to Pilate, do you not hear the many things that they testify against you? Jesus, do you not see that these things that you don't seem to be answering right now the way that I want, don't you see how these things are testifying against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so the governor was greatly amazed. Listen to me. I wonder if the reason why it may seem to you that Jesus is not answering you the way that you want is because he wants you to see that he's already given the greatest answer to any accusation you can make in your life. And just like he didn't answer the chief priests and elders because he was like, I've been telling you for three years that I am the Savior. I've been telling you why I came. I've been telling you that I came to live a perfect life for you and to die on the cross for you and to be risen three days later for you. That the reason why I'm standing before this person for something that I'm not guilty of is for you. And I wonder this morning if we just need to stop and stop and say to ourselves, Lord, forgive me for the accusations that I'm making against you, believing that you need to speak in a different way to the things that others are seeing in my life that say, man, I believe that this may take away from who you are. When in reality, what the Lord wants us to do is he wants us to look at what he already has done and say, Lord, I don't need to ask you what are you doing here because I understand that by looking at you standing before Pilate, like Isaiah 53 says, as a lamb that was led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth, that we need to allow that to be the greatest answer to any accusation that may be unfounded to our Savior this morning. Here's the second question. And look at verses 15 through 23. I'm glad we got one person in here that's excited this morning. Come on. Look at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they then had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, like I said, if you've known this passage of Scripture any time, this name would be familiar to you. But we don't know a lot about Barabbas. Don't know a lot about him other than him being mentioned in, in this account of being before Pilate, but we know he was a robber, we know he was a murderer, we know he's an insurrectionist according to historical documents. Josephus is probably the most well-known Jewish historian that would have lived during this time. So we know that he was not a person that you would invite over for lunch, right? He was, he was a rebel, murderer, insurrectionist. 
Luke 23 speaks to Barabbas. John 18 speaks to Barabbas. He was a great threat to the fellow Jews. Like it wasn't like the Jews didn't even like him. The Jews were scared to death of him, even though Barabbas was a Jew. So it wasn't like, yeah, yeah, we actually want Barabbas. Yeah, man, he's a friend of ours. No, no, he was someone who even scared them. So he was someone that was not a friend of the Jews, and he was for sure someone that was not a friend of Rome. But it's interesting that when we look at this individual, we know because of the severity of his crimes, his insurrection, his murder, his robbery, that he was scheduled for execution. Like that's what his fate was. It was already sealed. And it's interesting that here we have Pilate and here stands Jesus, one who is innocent and perfect. And then this Barabbas is brought out in front of the people. And there he stands, guilty, for everything that he's been done and probably things that they don't even realize that he's done. And so we have two opposite individuals, do we not? Someone who is guilty and someone who stands innocent. And so we come to verse 17 and it says, so when they had gathered, so this crowd, Pilate said to him, now it's probably Mid-morning, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you? So this was a custom, remember, that they did every year, and Pilate's thinking into his brain, okay, I already know that Jesus is not guilty of what they are saying about him, so I'm going to find the worst, most crooked, most evil person possible that is in the jail right now and bring him out, so when I do that, They'll obviously want Jesus to be released and not this criminal that's a threat to them and obviously a threat to us. So Pilate thinks that he's got this all figured out. He thinks that this is the way that I'm going to get out of it. We obviously know, we know the rest of the story, but I want you to look at verse 18. Because it gives insight to why I said that, how Pilate knows what's going on here. Look at what it says in verse 18. For he, that's speaking of Pilate, knew that it was out of envy. That word envy literally means jealousy. Something taken that one sees as theirs. That's the idea of that word. So they're ridden with jealousy. Jesus has taken what we believe is ours. We'll get to what ours would be. That they had delivered him up. In verse 19, besides, he was... While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. So now we have Pilate's wife. What would she have said to him? And look what it says. She says this, have nothing to do with that righteous man. So his wife knows that Jesus is innocent. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now here's what you have to understand. You may not understand this, but when a court proceeding was taken, taking place in the praetorium, and Pilate, the governor, was overseeing that matter. Here's what you didn't do. You did not interrupt the proceedings. How many of you have ever been in a meeting or something like that, and all of a sudden your phone begins to ring, and it's like an important meeting, and you're like, oh, it's my kids. I need to answer this. 
which, listen, I have a mentor of mine that says anytime his kids called in whatever important meeting it was, he answered. So praise God for that. But have you ever had this happen? And you answer and you're like, you're thinking an emergency has happened. What has happened? And you answer the phone and, and you're like, uh, yes, Susie, what's going on? Like you're thinking like, like something horrible, like there's cops in the front yard or whatever. And they're like, do we have any cookies in the pantry? Seriously? Like I've been in meetings before and it's not my kids, it's someone else and it's like it's this, it's this intense meeting and all of a sudden someone, someone calls and you answer and you're like thinking, man, they would not be calling me at this time. Like Saturday nights, just to let you know, Saturday nights, not a great time to call me. Not a great time. Over, looking over the message and everything and it's funny, one of my buddies who's a pastor somewhere else, he called me last night. And so I'm thinking to myself, he's got the same thing to do tomorrow that I do. So if he's calling me, man, something big must have happened. Maybe something happened with him. So I answer the phone. I'm like, hey, I'm not going to mention his name, so-and-so. Uh, what's going on? Is everything okay? And he just wanted to shoot the breeze. And like I wanted to say, dude, don't you have the same thing to do tomorrow that I do? Like, can't we talk about this on Monday? And I just say that so you understand the weight of what was going on here and the, the weight that his wife felt, Pilate's wife felt, that she knew in her bones that Jesus was innocent, so much so that she was willing to send someone into those proceedings to interrupt them. Why? Because she knew the pressure that Pilate was under and she wanted to make sure that he didn't give in and send someone innocent to the cross. Now look, let's keep going in this passage of Scripture. Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded. That word persuaded means convinced. To serve one's agenda. The crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, this is Pilate speaking, which of the two do you want me to release for you? Like Pilate's still thinking, surely they're not going to choose Barabbas. And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Like Pilate knew their envy. He knew what the religious leaders were trying to do. And so what he was hoping to do was to pit their leaders against the crowd. Surely the crowd would not send someone innocent, the one who had worked miracles, the one who had fed them from five loaves and two fishes, the one who they had sealed, he, seen heal the sick and heal the blind and do many miracles and sit with tax collectors and sit with sinners and, and not segregate himself from those that needed him the most. Like, like surely they would not send this person to the cross in the replacement of someone who was clearly guilty for what he did. Pilate had no idea, but look at what they say. Then all of them said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Here's the second question I need to ask myself that will shape the way that I respond to the Savior this morning. Do I have animosity towards the Savior today? Because when I'm hurling unfounded accusations and I'm not allowing 
the greatest answer of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to speak to those unfounded accusations. What that builds up in my heart is animosity towards the Savior. And I really think animosity towards the Savior is rooted in two things, and we find these two things in this passage of Scripture. We find the motivation for while the chief priests and the religious leaders reacted the way that Jesus, the way that they did, the reason why the crowds reacted to Jesus the way that they did, remember, not days before were these probably the same people that were shouting, Hosanna, King of the Jews. See, I think animosity towards the Savior is rooted, first of all, in this. It's rooted in Jesus taking what I believe is rightfully mine. It's how animosity builds up in my life. Because I get caught up thinking that Jesus has taken something that I deserve, that should be mine. Remember that word envy that we find in this passage of Scripture? That's what drove the religious leaders to go so far and drift so far away to the point of absolute unbelief is because Jesus had taken the spotlight that they loved they loved being seen as the one that's ones that had the answer. They loved being seen as the ones that were the wisest in the room. They loved being seen as the ones who had it all together. And remember, Jesus' ministry was all about what is in the heart. Remember what Jesus calls? Like he just throws down some like major insults towards the Pharisees. One of the things he calls them is whited sepulchers or whited tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you're dead on the inside was not something to get the Pharisees to like him. But what was Jesus doing? He was calling them out for the things that he saw they needed the most. And because the spotlight was being taken off of them and placed on the one who was only deserving of that spotlight, and he had taken what they thought was rightfully theirs, envy built up, animosity built up, to the point to where they could not see the Savior for who he was. And I wonder this morning, is there something in our life that we are angry at God over, that we're bitter at God over, that we are just wrapped up inside and twisted in knots over because we have tricked ourselves into believing that the Savior has taken something that is rightfully mine. Maybe that's where your animosity stems from. But I think animosity can be rooted in also this because we look at the crowd. See, animosity is rooted in Jesus not doing what I believe he should have done. See, that's the second thing that animosity can be rooted in. See, these crowds, they loved Jesus when they thought he was entering into Jerusalem to set up his earthly kingdom, to overthrow the tyrannical rule of Rome, and they were all about Jesus. But when Jesus had a different plan to meet their greatest need, which was not freedom from imperial rule, but it was freedom from sin. And when they saw that Jesus was going to do something different than what they think he should do, they were easily persuaded to cry out, crucify him. Easily persuaded to say, no, nah, I don't want, I don't want that Jesus. And I wonder if you're here today and you're like, you maybe even be like, man, I remember raising my hand in a crowd 
10 years ago and saying, yeah, I needed Jesus. But the reality is, is Jesus did not work things out the way that I wanted him to do that. And so I'm here today just by chance. See, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Why? Because I have animosity built in my heart because he's done something different than I thought he should do in my life. And what the Savior wants you to do is he wants you to look at him in a fresh way. And he wants you to see that I was innocent. And you were Barabbas. You were the one that was guilty. You were the one that was the sinner. And the only reason why I'm stand, I was standing there not opening up my mouth, not responding to the animosity, is I was there for you. And we need to remind ourselves of that this morning, that if there's animosity in our heart because we feel like, Savior, why did you take that away from me? Savior, why did you do that differently than I thought it should be done? Oh, we need to repent. And we need to kneel before our Savior and we need to look to him and understand that the greatest answer to our accusations or the greatest answer to drive away the animosity in my heart and turn it into passion for the Savior is to look at what he has done for me, to look at him as he was on trial, innocent for me. And the only reason why he was there was for me. Here's the third question we need to answer or ask ourselves, and it's found in verses 24 through 26. Let's close out this passage of Scripture. Look at what it says. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, like everything that I'm trying, like I put before these people some scenario that I for sure thought that they would take, they're surely not going to release this horrible criminal in place of this innocent Savior, but... It didn't work out that way. But rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. See, this whole trial that Pilate allowed to happen, he didn't allow it to happen because he knew that he needed it. He knew Jesus was innocent. He was just going through the motions. I'm going to give these, these individuals, these leaders, what they want. We're going to go through the motions, and, and Jesus is going to be released, and we're, I'm going to get on with my day today. But the, scri- or the religious leaders were smart because they knew that the last thing that Pilate wanted was another insurrection. See, history tells us that three other times before when this takes place, there were different riots that were the result of Pilate's mistakes and decisions that he made. And Pilate knew the threat that if one more riot takes place, I'm going to be the one whose life has ended. And the religious leaders knew that. Pilate knew that. His wife knew that. And so that's what leads to Pilate 
washing his hands, saying, all right, just do whatever you want. Let's finish out this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 25. And the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he, Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Here's the third question we need to ask ourselves that shapes how we respond to the Savior. Number three, are you being apathetic towards the Savior? See, here's the progression. I start making unfounded accusations. And when I'm not allowing the greatest answer that could be ever given to the questions that I'm asking, which are rooted in why, and we don't, I don't look to the greatest answer, the greatest sacrifice that allows me to trust in what the Savior's doing in the moment because I understand that he met my greatest need in the past, then that develops into animosity. And if we're not careful, if that animosity is not addressed by reminding ourselves of what Jesus Christ has done for us, or maybe you're here today and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone for you, then what happens is apathy begins to develop. And apathy is rooted in selfishness. My apathy is rooted in selfishness because at the end of the day, what I'm thinking about when my heart is beginning to be filled with apathy is I'm just focused on what's the best situation for me. Like I really don't have time to get into God's word today because I got better things to do for who? For me. Apathy is rooted in selfishness. Apathy for Pilate was rooted in selfishness. I'm not gonna take a stand. I'm not gonna allow this innocent man to go to the cross. Why? Because I'm consumed with what's best for me. Now let me just stop there and let me say what I've been saying every week because I don't want anyone to miss this. The reason why the Savior went to the cross is because it was ordained by him. He wasn't trapped in this passage of Scripture He wasn't caught in this passage of scripture. He wasn't hoping that Pilate would have said he's innocent. No, no, no. This was the plan of God at the beginning of time. So let's just make that clear. Jesus isn't hoping, I hope Pilate's gonna declare me innocent. No, no, no. Jesus chose this road. And he chose it for you and he chose it for me. I just wanna make that clear. But I also want to ask ourselves, because we still have a free will, we still have a responsibility for the choices that we make, and I wonder, where are we experiencing apathy today? Where have the unfounded accusations and the animosity led us to apathy? Apathy in my personal relationship with the Lord. You're like, man, I haven't been in God's word in weeks, months, years. I come to church, I do the thing, sing the songs, listen to you speak, and then I go and throw my Bible in the trunk, close it so I know where it's there the next time that I need it. What is the unfounded accusation that the Lord wants you to be answered by what Jesus Christ has done for you? What is the animosity that he's wanting you to lay down and to ask forgiveness for saying, Lord, this, none of what I have is mine. Lord, your ways are higher than my ways. 
Lord, rid me of the apathy of my heart and let the passion of who you are again to well up within me. Let me confess that sin so that the Holy Spirit can do his work in my life. You have animosity in your worship? I can't even sing a song because I'm so wrapped up. Animosity in your involvement in biblical community? No, 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 that person hurt me. I'm never going to allow anybody in again. Animosity in God's mission for my life? What, I took a risk here, and that risk didn't work out the way that it should, and I'm no longer going to look at my life as something that's to be used for your honor and your glory. I'm no longer going to look at the opportunities that lay in front of me outside of this building, in this city, in this state, in this nation, in this world. I'm not doing that again, Lord. I'm not putting myself out there. Has apathy grown in your heart because the Lord hasn't answered the accusations that you're hurling at him and allowed that to build up into animosity it's resulted in apathy listen to me the greatest answer to my apathy towards the savior is to gaze upon his willing life to gaze upon him standing in that praetorium innocent of the crimes that he was charged for not opening up his mouth It says in John 18, he says to Pilate, Pilate, if I wanted to call down over 100,000 angels and stand in my defense, I could right now. But it was what is keeping me here, what is keeping me to submit to people that I created, what is keeping me here to say nothing of my defense is my love for past, present, and future. Every man, woman, and child that will be on this earth for all time. That's what's keeping me here. What kept him standing in that place was you and it was me. And I need to gaze once again on that Savior standing there for me.